So welcome everyone to another episode of Sex Ed Before Bed. Here with me today is Sarah Cran, who recently completed a postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Windsor. And we are speaking with her today after I read an enthralling December 6, 2020 Globe and Mail article entitled The Pleasure Gap, How a New Program is Revolutionizing Sexual Health Education for Young Women. And Sarah Cran is very much involved in that program. And that's why we're here today. Welcome, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> thank you. So Sarah, please tell us a little bit about yourself and why you chose this area of research. Yeah, so I think the journey for me to working, doing research on violence against women really started when I was an undergraduate student at York University, where I, I did a psychology undergrad degree. And I'd always had this plan to be a clinical psychologist and do a counseling role. But over the course of doing my undergrad degree, really took an interest in research and was taking a lot of classes that were dealing with issues around gender oppression and equity and justice. And at the same time that I was working through my degree, I was also working at York University's on-campus sexual assault survivor support line. And there were some pretty high-profile sexual assaults happening in and around the York community, and I had in my personal life, friends who were really deeply affected by these issues and sort of all of these things kind of came together. And I, and I started to think, you know, working on issues around women and girls, health and well-being, but violence in particular is really where I want to be focused. And so I did my master's degree at the University of Guelph and in their applied social psychology program. And I went on to do my PhD there as well. And when I started that my master's degree, my supervisor at the time told me about this brand new research project that they were embarking on. They were going to test the effectiveness of this new sexual assault resistance program. And did I want to be involved in that project? And of course I said, yes. And so I started, that was sort of my introduction to what is now the Flip the Script program. And at the same time, I was doing some research with adolescent girls around relationships and empowerment. And I thought, you know, if there's ever an opportunity to adapt this program, which is for university students, for teen girls, I want to be involved in that work. And we were able to apply for funding and I positioned over at the University of Windsor, and we were able to do that work. So that's sort of the story of how I ended up where I am. Wow, that's fascinating. And it is interesting that it's driven by that, it's experiences that you've heard from friends, from people that you know, that perhaps like brought it home a bit for you. Yeah, I was really able to see like the things I was learning about in the classroom during my undergrad degree, I was actually seeing play out in the lives of my friends and family members. And so it was sort of just interesting how both of those things were happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So naturally, it raises questions. You know, certainly the Globe and Mail article talks about kind of the pleasure gap and that this, the pressure that young women feel, but then there's also the violence aspect of it. And, you know, you co-authored a chapter entitled Strangers Are Unsafe, Institutionalized Rape Culture and the Complexity of Addressing University Women's Safety Concerns. What are the telltale signs of institutionalized rape culture and how can we challenge it in our minds and our actions? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So at the, thinking about the university as an institution, which is where you know, that chapter that you refer to and some of my other work has really been situated. I think for 
I don't want to speak on behalf of all survivors because I have not personally gone through the process of reporting a rape on a university campus, but I think that reporting process is one of the strongest indicators of how we have institutionalized rape culture happening on university campuses. That there's there might be support available to survivors, that they are able to reach out to someone on the campus. You know, there's often sexual assault misconduct offices on university campuses where they provide support for survivors. And so they're able to get that that sort of like emotional or psychological support. Those places usually help with getting informing instructors that the student needs to have an extension on a project or won't be writing an exam because they're dealing with something in their personal lives. So there's that piece of support, which of course is very important. But when survivors want to take it a step further and sort of work their way through the institutional process and actually make change to the institution that's where I think they run into a number of barriers. And so the reaction from the university is often sort of an indicator on how they're approaching sexual violence that's happening on their campus. And unfortunately, often the response is to try to just sweep it under the rug. Yeah, that's certainly telling. And why do you think that is? I think it's a very hard thing to confront that the institution or the organization that you work for has a problem as big and complex as sexual violence. There is no easy solution to this problem. Um, The program Flip the Script that I think we'll talk about in more detail in a moment is one part of a solution, but it's not enough to make one program available on your campus and sort of call it a day. And so there need to be a lot of a lot of actors working. And again, I'm thinking about the university context specifically. There needs to be a lot of things happening at the same time because each one of those things is going to make a little bit of change. And then over time with all of those pieces working together, then we can see broader, long-term, sustained change, which in this case would be an end to, to sexual assaults on campuses. Yeah. Absolutely. And so in that in that vein, I would love to learn more about what is Flip the Script. Sure. So Flip the Script, which goes by also by its more academic name, which is the Enhanced Assess Acknowledge Act or EAAA program, is a feminist sexual assault resistance program. It was developed by Dr. Charlene Sen at the University of Windsor. And it's an interactive education program that's delivered in small groups of about 15 to 20 young women. And it's designed to help them gain knowledge, skills, and confidence to effectively resist sexual assault in a way that does not limit their personal freedom or choices. So there's no telling women like what they should or should not be doing in any given situation. And it does not hold them responsible for sexual assault and in fact makes perpetrators responsibility for sexual assault kind of front and center in the program. So it's 12 hours long, it's split into four three-hour units, and it's facilitated by two highly trained young women. And these women typically are about 10 years or so older than the participants, and it's so that they're seen as relatable, but also as content experts because they go through this, this really immersive training. And the program is intentionally designed to be inclusive of both cis and trans women, 
And it's applicable to and open to women with a range of sexual identities, abilities, sexual assault histories, and lived experiences. And I can tell you more about the content of the programs. Oh, yes. I would definitely want to talk uh, about the window piece, but please continue however yeah. you see fit. Sure. So I'll just give an, an overview of mm-hmm. the, the four units. So they're called Assess, Acknowledge, Act, and then the final unit is Relationships and Sexuality. So in the Assess unit, young women learn to recognize risk for sexual assault, particularly risk from the men that they know in their lives, and they practice coming up with strategies to reduce perpetrator advantages. And then in the Acknowledge unit, they learn to more quickly acknowledge when a situation that they're in has become coercive and they practice exploring different ways to overcome the psychological and the social barriers to resisting unwanted sexual behaviors. And they practice in that unit as well. They practice resisting verbal coercion. And then the next unit is ACT. And this is where they take an adapted version of the Wendell Women's self-defense course, and they learn to fight back using a range of forceful verbal and physical strategies. And just like the whole program, it's focused on sexual assault situations that are most common with acquaintances. So in the ACT unit, young women learn, for example, how to get out of a chokehold or how to get out from under someone who might be on top of them on a bed. And then in the fourth unit, which is relationships and sexuality, this unit really integrates the content from the first three units, which was around resisting sexual assault. It integrates it into participants' sexual lives by providing information on sexual health and sexuality and really offering young women a space to explore their own sexual attitudes, values, desires, and to help them develop strategies for sexual communication. And so that last unit is developed from the Our Whole Lives sexuality education, which you can get for a relatively low cost through the Unitarian Universalist Association. And essentially the like the logic behind having a sexuality education piece in a sexual assault resistance program is really about giving women the opportunity to think about what they might be interested in doing or not doing in sexual or intimate relationships so that when they're in situations in the moment, it's not the first time they're thinking about it. They've already had time to think about it. They have skills around sexual communication and then they're able to more quickly, they're able to trust themselves and they're able to more quickly extricate themselves from a situation that's turned coercive. Mm. I think that's so important. And it's something that we've talked about on the show before we had uh, Jessica on the show who had a play called The Giangomeshi Effect and uh, talking about sexual scripts. And I, I think this program speaks to the thoughtfulness and the planning that can make a difference for young women where they're not uh, forced to make those decisions on the spot under duress or what have you. So I think it's so important. And I we will include the link to the Our Whole Lives in our show notes. So these topics are the reason that I do this show, because I I want to reach out to young women who, you know, like me, like many, didn't have the education, right? We just, and we think that school empowers us for life. And this is such a critical piece for life. 
it can have such a, we know that it can have such terrible impacts on women who are victims. And then there's of course the shame and the hiding and then the, the fear of reporting or the trauma that happens when you report. So I really think the work that you and, and Charlene have done is incredible. And I would love to see it in every, every school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> me, me as well. <laughs> I, I mean, I think your, your point about schools, like we assume schools prepare us for life, but in reality, that's actually not the case. Just resonates so deeply with what I heard from young women who I spoke to as part of the research that we did to adapt, flip the script for adolescent population. Um, so part of that process was running focus groups discussions with them about their perspectives on relationships and sexuality and sexual assault and sexual assault resistance to help us better understand the current social and developmental context of adolescence as a way to help us adapt the program. And what I heard over and over again from those young women was that school is not the place where they are getting any useful information. And I'm painting it with a broad strokes here, but that was the central message was that school is not a place where they're, where they see themselves being able to go to get support, to get help. You know, a lot of them talked about their guidance counselors and, you know, I love guidance counselors and I know many of them. So this is not to talk poorly of guidance counselors, but they're not often equipped to deal with these types of things or to provide youth with the information that they're looking for. And this, the young women that I talked to often spoke about like knowing that teachers either didn't have the information that they were looking for or that they would somehow be redirected away from the information they were asking for. So if they're asking for information um, related to safe sex practices, if they're asking for information about a situation that they experienced on the weekend that they think might be sexual assault, but they're not sure and they don't know what to do about it, they're getting redirected to, you know, the pamphlets on the wall that don't have any information that they're looking for because they're about mental health and suicide, which are important topics that kids need access to information on, but not the topics that the girls are asking about. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it just, it really, I think this idea that this education is going to happen in schools, the way that sort of the education system is right now. And of course, teachers have no resources. They have no support. They're doing so much work already. They can't be expected to also shoulder this burden. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I mean, I think there needs to be an overhaul in how we are approaching these topics with youth in schools. Is this uh, the high school students that you're referring to? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I do, you know... So I'll just, just drawing upon the education I got to become a sexual health educator and kind of learning about how the, the shame that we've in, all internalized permeates our institutions, right? So the institutions doesn't seem equipped, but also each individual has their own squeamishness around these things, which may, I would assume, preclude them from being able to help these young women, and so I think it's really a challenge. I think it would be, it's a challenge. I think it's absolutely necessary, but I do wonder about the personal work that needs to go on in order for that kind of transformation to take place. Yeah. I think we often think about, like, it's very natural, right? Like for parents, as an example, to want to protect their kids by shielding them from information or from situations that might have the potential to be difficult for that child or to even cause them harm, right? We don't want to talk to our kids about sex because then that means that they might have sex. And if they're having sex, there might be consequences to that sex. 
but I, but we have it backwards where I think we're actively imposing harm on our youth if we're not having these conversations with them because they're going to look to other sources for that information anyways. We can't control what information they're receiving. We don't know if it's good information, probably for most sources, it's not. Um, and we have lots of research evidence that shows that youth are not talking specifically around like sexual assault and getting support for sexual assault. Youth do not talk to their parents about these issues. They will go to their friends. They will go to other adults um, if they absolutely have to, but they're not going to go to their parents for these issues, um, sort of generally speaking. And so our silence on these topics, just, you know, whether we're a teacher or we're an administrator in a school system, or we're a a doctor, like a physician or a parent, whoever you are, our silence on these topics, I think signals to the youth in our lives that we're uncomfortable and we're not a source of information or support for them, which obviously has really serious consequences. Yep, absolutely. And I do... I remember there was a, and I'll add it to the show notes, there was a resource called Becoming an Askable Adult, you know, how mm-hmm. to kind of open, your, and I want to, it's a question I have for you later about resources for for adults and also for youth, but I, I couldn't agree more that we've, that silence creates a taboo or creates like, there's no trigger, right? So if the, the conversation is never being had, if it's never heard being had by someone that we trust, we know what to do if there's a fire or we know how 911 works. We know some of these basic things. We know how not to touch the stove. We just don't know. And I'm speaking speaking from my own experience as a teenager, having my interactions with like with others and not knowing what to do, right? And then you're confused or you're kind of shaming yourself because you just don't understand. You don't have the context. You don't have the language. And you just don't, as you said, you don't even know who to talk to about it. So you're talking to your friends. They don't know any better, <laughs> right? I'm encouraged. So I'm a new mom. I have a seven-month-old daughter and I have many friends. Thanks. (laughs) I have many of my friends also have young children. And I have to say like, there seems to be, at least from, you know, my own narrow perspective, a shift in the way that parents with young children want to approach issues of sexual health, issues of bodily autonomy for their kids, which is really encouraging. You know, I, all of the young kids in my lives, they're using the correct, proper name for their body parts. Yep. They're actively watching their parents set up opportunities for them to say no and then respecting that child's no. So instead of you know forcing your kid to go hug grandma at Christmas, I'm seeing people like friends and family of mine say, you know, do you want to go give grandma a hug? No. Okay. Yep. No problem. Do you want to do a fist bump or a high five? Like there were lots of viral videos of teachers doing that kind of thing, giving kids a choice in how they want their bodies to be touched or not touched in those interactions. And so I find that really encouraging that maybe there's this, this shift happening in parenting where these conversations are going to be had imperfectly and perhaps, you know, in a very spotty way, but it's a start of perhaps like a new approach to talking to your kids about sex and consent and sexuality mm-hmm. and bodies and things like that. Something that I tried recently, um, there's a, like, like a, my partner has a five-year-old and asking her if it's okay to photograph her. Hmm you know, and sometimes she doesn't want to be photographed and that's it, right? It's, well, I don't have 
is it my job to say when when she should be photographed or I, I respect her choices. So really, that is heartening. It is heartening. Mm-hmm. I am curious, you know, to our sort of dream of having flip the script roll out all across Canada. And I'm thinking about the obstacles and, you know, I live in Ontario and we saw a curriculum come out mid 2000s. I'm forgetting what year it was. And we saw consent was included. We saw it was a bit more, it was more modern, more progressive. And then we saw it rolled back to the 1998 curriculum. I'm wondering how, what you're adapting for high school, how is it going to permeate challenges like that? So when Charlene said and I started working on adapting Flip the Script from the university program for adolescents, it was always our intention to make sure the program was as widely available as possible so that anyone who wanted to take it could take it. And so it's been a very intentional choice to have Flip the Script be able to operate independently of the school system because one of the reasons is that we're not sort of beholden to the political mandates or priorities of whatever government is in power at the time or curriculum choices within particular boards, but also because we recognize that not all adolescent girls are enrolled in high school or are regularly attending school. And so we wanted to make sure that we weren't excluding anyone by having the program only be available through school boards. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what will that look like? Yeah, so at the end, so we're currently about to start the last phase of our project where we're taking the adapted program that we've spent the last two and a half years adapting, and now we're going to move on to evaluating the effectiveness of the program. Does it lead to reductions in sexual assault rates? for girls who take the program. Okay. And so once we've finished that study and we know that, yes, this program does reduce sexual assault rates, then we're going to move on to widely disseminating it. So our first step is to contact all of the school boards in the province and ultimately across the country to give them information about the program and essentially invite them to consider implementing the program within the board. And then we also plan to do that with the sexual assault centers across the province, and again, ultimately nationally, and other community-based organizations that might be interested in this type of programming and offering it through their organization. And so ultimately, our plan is to have the program available through school boards, as well as through community-based organizations. Oh, lovely. I love that it's been designed that way. Yeah, it was a little bit different than the university program. Like The university program was intentionally designed for students who are already in university, and the university system operates very differently than the secondary school system. And so we knew we were going to have to do something a little bit different. And we we really didn't want to put all our eggs in one basket, so to speak, with going through the school boards. School boards are an incredibly important partner. And of course, we want to be able to offer the program through as many schools as possible. But we do recognize that there are constraints to that model. And so we're hoping that this hybrid model will work well for the program. And we have some anecdotal evidence that running the program through a community organization actually works quite well. There's Uh, The Women's Shelter in North Vancouver is actually running a slightly adapted version of the university program for teens at the moment. 
it was mentioned in the Globe and Mail article, and they're finding really positive feedback from the girls who take the program, from their parents, from the community about the program. And so we're encouraged by the way that it's able to be made available through the community. Right. So does the, I mean, I understand that it's it's going to be evaluated, but I'm thinking we know that technically, as it currently stands around the area of consent, we know that technically a person can't consent if they're under the influence of alcohol or drugs. This is a challenge. This is a gray area. Does Flip the Script talk about this? So because Flip the Script is a sexual assault resistance program and nine of the 12 hours are really focused on coercive situations where sex is unwanted and working and focuses on helping girls and women develop knowledge and skills to effectively resist in those types of situations. I think our discussions around alcohol, drugs, and consent, well, they, they are focused on kind of how the presence of alcohol even if you are not drinking, is a risk factor for sexual assault and how alcohol can be used to justify people's coercive and assaultive behavior. So in this way, our focus on the role of alcohol is really in unwanted sex, which Mm -hmm. I think differs from discussions of kind of the messy relationship between alcohol and drugs. Right. And wanted sex. Yeah. Um, So it does come up sometimes. Participants will ask questions. And I think it often stems stems from a concern like, oh, I just learned about sexual assault and consent laws in Canada. And now I'm thinking about last weekend when I was at a party Mm. and my boyfriend and I got drunk and had sex. So am I supposed to see myself as as a victim now? Am I supposed to see myself as a rapist? Yeah. Are my partner and I going to get charged? Yeah. And so like I... I understand the anxiety around it and the way that the facilitators would typically deal with questions around that is to reiterate that the Canadian laws, as you said, like are very clear. You have to obtain consent and you cannot consent if you are impaired, but that reporting a sexual assault or seeking support for sexual assault is not a light decision that people just make nilly willy. So it's really unlikely that if someone woke up the next morning and they didn't feel like they've been harmed at all through that sexual encounter, it's really unlikely that they would go ahead and then make a report of sexual assault or seek support for sexual assault. So we really focus on sort of the impact of the experience on the people who are involved. And if no harm was felt by you or your partner or anyone else who was involved, then you probably don't need to see yourself or your partner as a victim or a perpetrator. But that being said, like we do really want to to reiterate that the presence of alcohol or drugs is a risk factor for sexual assault. And when you're using alcohol or drugs and impaired and engaging in wanted sex while impaired, that that does create additional risks for the situation. It can impair our ability to react quickly when the situation perhaps moves from wanted sex to unwanted sex. So we don't tell young women not to drink or not to do drugs if they're going to engage in wanted sex, but we do just have them think through a little bit. What is the additional risk that that kind of situation brings up? Yeah. It makes me think about, of course, the, how do you say the Me Too movement, which is been obviously happening for anybody who hasn't been living under a rock. And I'm thinking about (laughs) it does tie into what you're saying, but it's also about what happens after and whether and how we believe victims, but also tying into how the the justice system 
treats victims and treats those that are the accused, right? And so has that had an impact just on how you view your own work or anything to say about that? Well, I think for me personally, thinking about where my work is positioned in relation to the other work that's going on around sexual violence prevention, I think things like the Me Too movement where you see these global movements that all of a sudden discussions about rape culture are at the forefront of what we're talking about. And you're actually seeing some consequences for people who have been identified as being perpetrators or serial perpetrators. And so for me, it was kind of a moment of reflection that my work is is part of this much bigger movement to end sexual violence and that there are folks who are doing really fantastic work in different ways, but that all of it is really connected and it's all kind of moving us forward towards what I hope is a future where we don't have sexual violence or that if sexual violence does occur, that it is a rare instance and we have things like restorative justice sort of frameworks set up and, you know, we're able to hold those perpetrators accountable, but we do it in a way that is not harmful to the people who are going through the justice system. Mm. I think what you're doing is so important. I can't say it enough. I can't say how much, how important it is, how much, how meaningful it is for me and for, I think, every other woman or woman identified person, not only in Canada, but our, you know, we have listeners outside Canada as well. And I want to go back to the audience that you're seeking to reach and just knowing that some young women and girls are not going to have access to this right away or, or may never get to. And so what message do you have for them? Yeah. So a message for young women who might never get to take the program. Yeah. Yeah. I think, so for me, one of the most important messages that comes out of Flip the Script is to listen to and trust your your gut. And it might sound a bit trite, or like it's not the most earth-shattering advice, but I really do think that it's an act of like radical self-love to start listening what our bodies and our hearts are telling us. Because as women and girls, we're socialized into ignoring our intuition, right? Because we're expected to privilege the feelings and needs of others, particularly men over our own, or we're concerned about seeming like, over-emotional or that we're overreacting to a situation. And of course, this is, you know, women who are racialized or indigenous or have this live with disabilities or are, are not straight, you know, these, this affects them in different ways as well. And over time, our inner voice gets quieter and our boundaries get a little bit softer and being able to actually listen to what your gut is telling you that something is not right in the situation. I don't like what is happening. I'm not comfortable here is a really hard thing to do because we don't have practice doing it. But once you start to do it, it's very hard to stop because it gives you such a feeling of empowerment and a sense of control over the situations. And then So like that's for the first piece. And then the second piece, of course, is it's one thing to listen to your gut, but then you have to be able to overcome some of the emotional or the social barriers actually acting on that feeling. And that's really what Flip the Script is about, kind of giving girls and women permission to trust themselves and then providing them with the knowledge and skills to act when someone's put them in a coercive situation. But that first step about just like listening to your gut and trusting that you are reading the situation correctly is so important. Yep. 
Couldn't agree more. I'm thinking about then what message you might have for parents. Yeah, so we talked about this a little bit before and in the importance of parents talking to their kids and not shying away from discussions of sexual health and sexual sexuality. And so I think my, my sort of advice or message for parents would be in that similar vein that your teens, your teen girls in particular, that's the population that I've worked with, they want information and resources on these topics. They want to have these conversations, even if you think that they don't. And so being able to initiate that conversation, even if it's something as simple as giving them a resource and saying, you know, take a look at this. I'd like to talk about it. Just opening the door, even just a little bit, to be able to talk to your kids about these topics, sexual assault, dating, violence, consent, will help ensure that our kids at least have some information sort of moving forward as they, you know, go through adolescence and start maybe dating or having sexual experiences and transition into adulthood. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And I, I did want to go back to something you said about first of all, great advice about for women to listen to their gut and that that listening to ourselves is an act of radical self-love and giving ourselves, permitting ourselves to, to trust ourselves. That is really profound. And I think about then how what you've described overflows into adulthood, because what you said is, and what the article mentions is that, you know, this doesn't stop when you leave university. <laughs> pleasing others. I remember growing up and uh, Cosmo, right? And I remember getting a little bit of media literacy and and someone pointing out, well, did you ever notice that the front cover of Cosmo is mostly focused on male pleasure? And I haven't read Cosmo probably in a long time. So I don't know if they've evolved. I hope they have. But I guess it just, it is a it really, this is not something that just stops once you graduate from university. And so I do... It's more of a comment than a question. I just think it's very important, I think, for all women, really, to to be thinking about these things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It doesn't stop when you graduate from university, right? And there are lots of women who don't go to university or college or post-secondary of any mm-hmm. kind. And it's not like they're then sheltered from, from these socialization forces or these experiences. Yeah. And once you start listening to yourself and and acting on whatever your gut is telling you in one context it's a little bit easier to do it in a different type of situation yeah um, and so I think that's a I don't want to say it's an easy way but it is maybe a helpful way to start to practice this like pick something super low stakes you know you you really want to watch the comedy but the person you're with wants to watch the horror movie but you're not going to say anything because you you know you want to just let let it be easy and let them have what they want. Well, you know, I think it's important that we say, actually, no, this is what I would like in this situation. Yeah. Um, And it's sort of a silly example, but it has broad reaching implications, I think, for ways that we interact with people in different types of um, social situations. For sure. I think women are taught to be nice and to keep the peace, to keep harmony and So it runs counter to how do we vocalize, you know, vocalizing what we want, putting our, our feelings first, rather than always being concerned about everybody else's. (laughs) And uh, I'll just mention that 
for those who are not aware of Window, and I will include a link, it is an incredible program. They do, not sure what's going on with it in lieu of uh, COVID-19, but prior to that, they did offer a two-day training, which I took with a friend in Toronto years ago. And wow, it is for all ages and it is so empowering. And you don't realize how much you miss those conversations until you have them. You don't realize how absent those how much you've wanted to talk about those things until you start talking about it with other women and oh my gosh like I remember feeling so connected with the other women in the room definitely cried a few times and uh you know at the end they kind of there's a whole piece it's the mental piece it's it's what you're thinking about yourself what you say out loud how you defend yourself and then how understanding your own strength that that's what I took away from it yeah, I, that I mean, completely resonates with my own experience taking Wendell Women's Self-Defense. It is, like, everything that you think about a self-defense course, just, like, throw that out the window because that is not Wendell at all. It's really focused on the emotional and the psychological aspect of having to defend yourself, which is missing from so many self-defense courses, right? Where they're just focused on here are the physical moves that you can use to defend yourself against an attacker. They're often using scenarios that are very stranger danger, which, you know, we know from decades of research are the least likely sexual assault situation to take place. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's such a wonderful program and they've actually moved the training online in amazing in amazing um, so they're still offering programs and yeah that's sort of my my unsolicited advice to all right. the listeners who identify as women is to try to take a, a window self-defense course if you can yeah it, it truly is amazing and I remember it plays on the capitalism piece as well because you certainly think okay what's profitable or what are the messages being driven home, right? So we have the damsel in distress. We have women in danger relying or either relying on men or being incapable of defending themselves. And finally, you see little glimmers, right? Where where the tide is changing or where you're seeing female protagonists that are smart. But I just feel like that was one of the aha moments for me in that course was, what did you notice about the movies you watched as a kid? So absolutely, I'm so glad that they're continuing their work. So I'll be sure to post them. I feel we could talk about these these topics all day. And I also feel like something you mentioned before about the, the pleasure aspect is that could be an offering in and of itself for women is how to discover what's pleasurable for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think what I'll say a couple of resources that I learned about, which is um, Scarletine, amaze.org has fantastic YouTube videos about sex for young people. Scarletine is a great website with, you know, evidence-based. They have like um, experts that answer your questions and it's a really good website for teens. And uh, is there any other resources that you, that you particularly like? Yeah, so I love both of those resources, and all of the girls and young women who go through Flip the Script get a participant resource kit that's full of, as the name suggests, resources for their local community, the province, the country, and then online, and both of those amazing resources are included. A couple others that we direct participants to, um, loveisrespect.org is a great one for 
um, healthy relationships for teens and young adults. So it has information on what is a healthy relationship, what are signs of abuse in relationships. They talk specifically about power and control, which is really important, and they provide lots of um, support for young people who might be experiencing an abusive relationship. Uh, Draw the Line is another one that we direct people to, which is a provincial campaign here in Ontario to engage Ontarians in conversations about sexual violence, and they have some useful resources on their website as well. They also have part of their campaign is posters and uh, postcards and stickers, I believe, that like organizations can have. And so you might, like, put up a poster in you know, your bathroom at work or something like that. And it helps to generate conversations within the workplace and other organi- you know, your gym or wherever you are. Yes. And then the, the third one I wanted to mention was the Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers. So they're sort of the umbrella organization that connects all of the local sexual assault centers together. And they have some really great resources on their website. In particular, if you're looking for support for sexual assault and Perhaps you don't live in a community that has a sexual assault center because not everywhere does. I would direct people to the Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Center. Oh, absolutely. We'll include the link. So is there a one thing that I wanted to know about Flip the Script is what what sort of findings, what are the preliminary findings showing? Yeah, so the version of the program for university women went through a rigorous evaluation study. Uh, it took place with over 900 women in first year university at the University of Windsor, the University of Calgary, and the University of Guelph, which is where I first got connected to this project. And essentially what we did is half the women got the program, the other half of the women took what is called care, usual care. So at a university that's typically having access to some fact sheets and some brochures about sexual violence. And then we followed those women up for two years to look at their experiences of sexual assault to be able to determine if the program had a significant impact on reducing rates of sexual assault. And what we found was really amazing. So rates of completed rape were reduced by 46%. And attempted rape were reduced by 63% among the women who took the program compared to the women that didn't. And sort of across the continuum of sexual violence, we saw about a 50% reduction in victimization. So what this translates to, uh, if we're just talking about rape and attempted rape, is that only 22 women need to take the program for one fewer rape to occur in that 12-month period, which is pretty astounding for a sexual assault resistance program. And these effects continue for up to two years. So often with programs, you have to take a booster session, again, to sort of re-up your knowledge on on the content. But we found that that wasn't necessary for Flip the Script. So we're hoping with our adaptation for high school students, or sorry, I should say adolescent girls, that we'll see similar, if not better, effects with that group. Mm. And then with that... Given what you said, it would be effective up to two years. Would there be maybe two offerings throughout the four years? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, You know, I think that we would have to do, chances are you wouldn't have to retake the entire program again, but there may be a need for a shorter booster session after after two years have passed. Um, And that's a really important question. And um, that research needs to be done for for um, us to be able to say whether or not that that's needed. 
within universities, it's the first two years that women are at the highest risk for experiencing sexual assault. So the fact that the program sort of covers those first two years is really important. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned also that this was this offering was made to also be accessible to uh, trans folk. Is that right? Yes. So trans women are absolutely invited to take the Flip the Trip program as it exists. And there's actually some research taking place right now to work on an adaptation for uh, trans men and gender non-conforming and non-binary folks. Right. One of the perhaps questions or criticisms was, you know, we're offering this to victims, but what are we doing for young men? What do you say to that? Yeah, I think it's an important question. I understand why people ask the question. And it often, I mean, there's sort of, there's two reasons why people are asking that question. What are we doing to stop the perpetration of sexual assault by young men? And also, where are the programs to support young men who have been victimized? And both of having programs available for both of those situations is absolutely important. And there are folks who are, who are doing that work. This is why we see Flip the Script as just one part of a more comprehensive approach to sexual violence that includes programs that target uh, the perpetration of sexual violence. Uh, unfortunately, those programs don't show long-term changes in behavior. So we're not seeing the needle move really significantly on uh, reductions in perpetration of sexual violence. So in the meantime, we still need to be able to provide women and girls with the best available knowledge and skills and confidence to be able to respond to sexually coercive situations Mm -hmm. until we have programs that are showing promise for reducing perpetration rates. And Sarah, just a question I think which uh, could have been introduced earlier too is just the statistics on sexual assault in Canada. So do you have offhand sort of what percentage of, of women or women identified folks really experience this throughout their life? Yeah, it's actually somewhat of a difficult question to answer, um, in part because reporting is, sexual assault is such an underreported crime. Um, Only about 10% of assaults are actually reported to the police where they can then track that data. So the sort of agreed upon statistic for academic researchers who study rates, uh, sorry, prevalence of sexual assault is about one in four women and one in six men who will be victimized. And that one in four for the women, that's based on what is reported or that's what's assumed based on that 90% that's not reported? Yeah, so that's based on studies that have been conducted uh, primarily with universities, university students who, of course, tend to be um, mostly white, mostly economically privileged people. So you have to sort of keep that in the back of your mind as well. But that's based on campus data. Um, So people self-reporting that they've experienced this rather than the police reports. Okay. Okay. And I just want to kind of drive it home um, for the listeners because... There is, I think, a myth that um, false false reports of sexual assault are somehow more common than other crimes. They're not. And I think Sarah's statistic that she just shared that we're saying at 10%. So 10% of, of sexual assault cases are reported. So just 
something for listeners to keep in mind. Yeah, the rates of false reporting for sexual assault are estimated to be between 2 and 8%, which is very similar to other crimes like burglary. So this idea that we have all of these false reports of sexual assault um, is just not accurate. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that. And finally, you know, how can folks keep track of what's going on with Flip the Script and how can they kind of follow you and, and what you're doing? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we're about to embark on the next research phase of our project. And then after that's completed in about two years' time, we will start disseminating the program more broadly. Um, and so if, if folks are interested in learning more about Flip the Script, they can go to the Fair Center which uh, is S-A-R-E, Sexual Assault Resistance Education Center.org. And this is the, the place to go to learn about Flip the Script, to learn about how to bring Flip the Script into your community or to your organization. And then updates on the actual research project and the work that we're doing to adapt Flip the Script for teens. You can follow our social media accounts, so at girls. Dot resist is our Instagram and at girls underscore resist is our Twitter account. It's been quiet lately. Um, COVID has mm-hmm. pushed things, has pushed our timeline a little bit. So there hasn't been much activity on those accounts because we're not currently doing research, but uh, keep your eyes out on those because we will be letting people know when we're recruiting young women uh, to take the program. Fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for the work you're doing. I think it's, I can't underscore the importance of what you're doing. So I please, please uh, know that we are cheering you on, you and Charlene, and we we need this work and uh, we're very grateful. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat about it. Absolutely. Absolutely.